Welcome to Be Brave at Work, a podcast devoted to helping you take the next step in your workplace. Each week, we'll be talking with real people with real stories about things they have not said or done or have said or done in their workplace that required bravery. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. This is Ed Everts, and I'm the founder and president of Excellius Leadership Development. Welcome to Be Brave at Work, a podcast devoted to helping you take the next step in your workplace. I hope you'll listen to our past podcast conversations, and if you'd like to hear past episodes, go to BeBraveAtWork.com, subscribe to our podcasts, and learn some valuable lessons about bravery at work. My new book, Drive Your Career, Nine High-Impact Ways to Take Responsibility for Your Success, is now available in paperback, on Kindle, and in audio at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and any online book retailer you prefer. Check out Drive Your Career today. Our podcast today is sponsored by Cabot Risk Strategies. Based in Woburn, Massachusetts, Cabot Risk Strategies has created innovative and customized insurance strategies for individuals and families, businesses, nonprofits, commercial real estate, and public entities. Cabot's client base continues to expand both within the region and within the markets they serve. And if you are looking for customized insurance services and solutions, contact Cabot at 800-222-5963 or visit them for more information at cabotrisk.com. I'm really excited to introduce our guest today. Rick West is the CEO and co-founder of Field Agent, a global work-on-demand platform. Prior to starting Field Agent, Rick worked 16 years with Procter & Gamble in various assignments in the United States, Hong Kong, and Bangkok. Since leaving Procter & Gamble, Rick has been a startup entrepreneur and has done so for 19 years. Rick has co-founded multiple startups, including the North Star Partnering Group, Core4 Research, Join, and most recently, Field Agent. He is a mentor, a speaker within the entrepreneurial community, and an active board member. He is also a member of the Global Endeavor Entrepreneur Network. From an Enneagram perspective, Rick is an eight-wing seven, which I'm sure he'll tell us about, and has a BBA in personnel and industrial relations with a minor in economics from the great University of Kentucky. We are so glad to have you with us today, Rick. Listen, it is my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me today. Tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, don't forget to tell our listeners what an eight wing seven is. <laughs> yeah, so I, I like to tell people that um, yeah, I came from the corporate world before I started this entrepreneurial journey. Uh, but in my world, I, I grew up in Appalachia. So Ed, I'm not sure how many folks from Appalachia you know, you have on your podcast, but I grew up on a holler in Kentucky and that's my world. I tell people that have no idea what I just said, that I'm a cross between Friday Night Lights and Hillbilly Elegy. <laughs> so that's my culture. That's what I came from. So that's me. Uh, but really, if you think of that culture and kind of coming in, that work ethic and, and what happened in my life, you know, the grandfathers, they're coal miners. My brother's a coal miner today. My dad worked on the railroad. That work ethic kind of took me into corporate America. Uh, and then from there, kind of weaved through that world. I ended up as an entrepreneur for the last, you know, again, 20 years. And uh, that's kind of maybe who I am today. So I still pull from that culture, all the good stuff, leave some of the, the, the not so good stuff behind. But that's maybe who I am today. Fantastic. And uh, what is an eight wing seven? You know, so if you're an Enneagram person at all to understand kind of what that thing means is that um, there's these different types, almost like a Myers-Briggs where you could be an ESTJ. You have a different type that you're you're considered. And so in my case, the eight is kind of a protector, one that kind of defends your, your self-confident. 
and the you have a wing, which means when you're you're healthy and you kind of go left to right a little bit, are you a wing seven or a wing nine? So I'm an eight kind of a protector, and that seven uh, also means I'm kind of a nonconformist. So I push back on things, Ed. I'm not going to push back on you today. Uh, <laughs> but for those folks that are into personality tests, Enneagram is one of those. Uh, there's gotten more popularity over the last probably five, seven years or so, especially those in the faith-based community. That could be a positive and negative there for you, but that's kind of what what drives uh, that that conversation around an eight-wing seven. Fantastic. And you know, I'm curious when you think back on your life, Rick, and in the way that you had described growing up and coming from a world that's part Friday Night Lights, part hillbilly elegy. How did you leave that world? Right. You have family that's still there. Uh, oftentimes people believe that they follow a pattern of family. And if my father's a teacher, I'm going to be a teacher. Or if my mother's a teacher, right? You know, is there something that happened or how did you vacate to the degree professionally that environment to do what you're doing today? So it, it, it's, a, it's, it's a great story. My brother, love my brother, very proud of him. He's a couple of years younger than me. Uh, he's a coal miner. He's fantastic at what he does. He digs coal every day. And because of that, we have power for electric cars and lights on and the coal that he digs uh, is metallurgical coal. And without that, we couldn't melt steel. So he's he's that guy over here. But for me, I, I just knew uh, that I didn't want to work in the coal mines. Again, love the area and wanted to do something different. If I've learned anything over the, the years, especially through high school, is that I'm kind of a first generation college kid. And I knew that education was going to get me into some field other than railroading or coal mining. And, and with that, Ed, I never would have dreamed as a senior in high school that I would be working for this big, massive, multi-billion dollar company called Procter & Gamble. I could not have told you what Procter & Gamble was. I knew what <laughs> Tide was. I knew what Crest was. Uh, so that exposure to that college education for me, and, and I leaned into it heavily, was to understand what would other opportunities be in front of me and you know, yeah, Ed, you and I can talk about life lessons, but if I've learned anything over my life over the last, you know, few decades is that success significance really follows the depth and the span of relationships. And so that's so important for the listeners here, whether you're in corporate America and you've got some mentorship happening, relationships, or you're outside of that, is that I have found, and this happened to me in high school, happened to me in college, in, in corporate America is that relationships pulled me into things and it pulled me in because of the relationships I had with people. Now I had to be prepared for being pulled in, but I had not had those, had I not had those relationships, Ed, I don't know that I could have um, applied for, suggested, or asked to be a part of multiple things, uh, including my last assignment with Proctor. A good friend of mine was in Asia. And the next thing you know, my wife and I and kids have relocated to Hong Kong and I've got an international assignment. And it wasn't that I was smarter, that I was more equipped, but I had amazing relationships and I was prepared. And you put those two things together and poof, I'm working in Asia with kind of the assignment of my life. Well, I'm wondering, did your parents recognize that when they sent you to the fantastic University of Kentucky that you would have a choice either to come back home and do as your father had done and your brother was doing or not come home? Um, is that something they consciously thought about? Did they want you to move on and not experience what they had experienced? Or? No, it's hard. My, my mom came from a family of nine. My dad was uh, the youngest of eight. 
my dad's family really uh, never went any past probably two, three miles away from the uh, the mountain home that he grew up in. My mom's family, almost to a person with the exception of her and her sister, all got into the military or started working somewhere and went all over the East Coast from New York, Pennsylvania down to Florida. So they were kind of ready for that, you know, kind of spawning out and, and what are we going to do? Uh, I think there's a part of my mom that would have yearned for me to stay, but at the same time knew that I was never really going to be happy. I mean, I, you know that early on in your life, right, Ed? I mean, you, you, you realize what you've been called to do. And I really felt like my calling was to be out. Now, the hard part is when you want to come back, how can you still participate in the culture? How can you still be a part of solutions in the area without being this condescending college kid that comes back talking like a city boy? I mean, Ed, it took... Um, it took years at the University of Kentucky to uh, lose the accent. Uh, even when I started with Proctor, I can remember my first boss telling me, if I didn't work on a few keywords and lose some of the harshness of the accent, I'm not going to let you travel and go see clients. And so there was a reality of just who I was. And I had to make kind of talk about just bold moves. I've got culture over here. And I've got to change the way I dress, the way I look. I mean, my freshman year in college, I was interested in getting a fraternity and I only own t-shirts, football jerseys and jeans and tennis shoes. And I'm going to a very preppy school that was eyes off, multiple, po multiple polos, madras, <laughs> loafers. And I had that kid by the name of Mark King pull me aside and said, Rick, I got to take you shopping. So 18 year old Mark took 18 year old Rick shopping and I bought a pair of Bass Weegians, fantastic shoes. A pair of duckhead khakis, amazing when it's starch in the pleat. Uh, <laughs> a couple of long sleeve polo shirts, button button up, button down shirts, a blue blazer and a tie. And he said, "Okay, you can make this work, but we still have to work on the language." So even that relationship was saying, "Yeah, I want to go do it." But the bravery, which is kind of what you and I bantered about before, about being brave, I had to be sensitive to not making fun of my culture making fun of my family who who is in my DNA that makes me who I am, yet the same point move on. I mean, even to the point, Ed, I'd come home and my, my brother would say, you know, hey, Ricky, talk like a city boy for us. <laughs> now, you and I can laugh about that. And it is, it's, right. it's funny, it's entertaining. But think of now coming back into the culture and being very respectful of who made me and whence I came, but realizing I moved on. Some of my friends never forgave me for that. And there's some of my friends that lived vicariously through me. And some are like, well, it's just something that Ricky did, right? So Rick just made that move. So that was early on in my career, making that kind of bold move to go to school, to jump into corporate America, when really I had no right to do that. But Ed, because of relationships and the work ethic that I had kind of made it through. Well, let's talk a little bit about those relationships. We could spend hours talking about your transition from the world of uh, Kentucky, where you uh, born in Kentucky, right, to uh, where you are today. And when we think about bravery at work, relationships are key. So if I'm going to tell you something that you need to hear that is very hard for me to say or do something at work that's hard to do, the better the relationships I have with people, the more likely I'll be successful. And I'd love to hear your thoughts, either from a corporate perspective, P&G, or entrepreneurial, You know what your definition of is of and your thoughts about the importance of relationships. Yeah, the, the whole relationship piece for me it gets back into the breadth and depth. And I'll, I'll talk through uh, a scenario that I run through as a, as a CEO of a tech company. 
Um, you can imagine we've got 100 employees of people come and go. Well, from a relationship standpoint, we firmly believe that we should be mentoring, you know, kind of discipling those that are working with us. And what I tell folks, Ed, is that if you're being called to go somewhere else, you're not leaving field agent because you're stressed out and you hate it, but you're really being called to go somewhere else. Come to us, come to your, your director, come to me. Let us be a part of the solution and help you land well somewhere else. And they're like, nah, I don't know. Why would I tell you that? Because, and, and I tell them, is like, listen, I am mentoring you today and we have this relationship. If you leave tomorrow and become an alumni, and that's what we call folks at Leaffield Asia alumni, become an alumni, and I stop engaging with you, you'll understand that it wasn't truly a relationship. I was just using you from a business perspective. The relationship didn't change because, Ed, you as a person is still there. You don't work for me anymore. But why would I stop mentoring you and come alongside you if I genuinely cared about you? And so, Ed, because of that, uh, just this year alone, we've had uh, two people come back, kind of boomerang back after two years and four years working for other companies where they got great experience, they enjoyed it, they moved on, but they really wanted to come back and be a part of what we had as a vision in our culture. And we welcome them back with open arms because we didn't stop the relationship piece of it. And that's what I would encourage people listening today is that how genuine is that mentorship relationship when that person no longer works there? And you really should ask yourself the hard question, why or why not? Why am I not continuing that relationship? So you're talking about when they leave your work environment, the importance of maintaining that relationship. Or even if they live your department. Hey, they left my department. Now they're over here. And then you realize, well, I don't want to talk to them because I'm going to focus on these other three people. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. There is a business side of this that you have to work on your department and your current company. You can't ignore them. But if I committed to Ed in this relationship to make Ed the best person he can be, hopefully within my company, just because he leaves tomorrow, I'm going to ignore him and not take his call and never have coffee with him again. That's just not a genuine relationship, in, in my mm -hmm. opinion. Mm -hmm. And so that's the piece that we really try to ingrain in our team. Well, I'm just wondering, Rick, your perspectives on the following. I had a podcast interview with a, another individual uh, earlier, and we talked about the importance of multiple leadership behaviors. And one of them is smiling. And I laughed and I said, you know, why is it that we have to teach mature adults, the importance of smiling. I have had clients who don't smile enough. They get up and talk to people and they don't ever crack a smile. And I'm like, okay, the first thing you have to start doing when you get up in front of people, uh, unless the topic you're talking about is, you know, older, super serious is smile. And, you know, here you and I are talking about something very basic, which is the importance of relationships. You know, why do you think, and I know you're not a sociologist, but, you know, why do you think some of the basics of human interaction like smiling, courtesy, building relationships are so hard and so distant from people in leadership roles. Yeah, I, th I think there was a time, especially if you you grew up during the during the Stephen Covey years, you know, kind of that begin with the end in mind, the seven basic habits, where things are. And I think what happens, and and I, I uh, I'm not going to get that baby story. I'll give you a PNG story, but forget about that. But what <laughs> happens is is that. I feel that we are so hyper-focused on self, hyper-focused on progressing, that we've lost that basic human decency, which is we should all move along together. Again, I'm not saying that, that I should be a doormat 
and let someone step on me and get promoted over me because I'm not competitive. You know, I'm, I'm one of the least competitive, competitive guys you'll know. But that concept of servant leadership, that concept of beginning with the end in mind and really sharpening your soul, all those basic concepts, I think, have kind of been put by the wayside because A, I'm focused on me and B, and, and this is a little bit more emphasized over COVID and other things is that by operating in Zoom and other ways, we've all just become these cogs. And we're just these really hyper productive cogs that have begun to ignore culture, have begun to ignore relationships and dependencies. And we're all interdependent, whether we believe it or not. And so because of that, the pendulum has swung way over here, Ed. Rick's opinion, not a sociologist, Rick's opinion is the pendulum has to swing. Now, are we going to be back in the Covey days when everyone read the book and you had, you know, is it going to be that strong? I don't know. But but we've learned over the last couple of years that culture has a shelf life. And in many cases, I would argue most cases, that shelf life is over and you've got to build it all over again. And so because of that, I think some of these things you inferred, Ed, uh, will begin to come back into fruition because we're not going to be a successful society, family, community, or company unless we get into the more of the servant mindset of how we can all be better together versus better as individuals. So that's just Rick, you know, preaching a little bit. No, listen, I completely agree with you. This vision of self versus vision of community. I am a huge movie buff and folks that know me well know this. And I uh, observe just socially how, you know, probably prior to the early 1960s, if you left your house, you looked great. I mean, you almost dressed up to go out. And of course, today, you, you know, you wouldn't want to dress up to go out. But there was something about the importance of how culture and community saw you that you always wanted to see them at your best. Today, people go out, you know, looking horribly, right? I mean, they wear clothing out that looks like they just rolled out of bed. I can remember going to church with my wife a few years ago, and it felt like it felt like half the parishioners had rolled out of bed, you know, five minutes ago based on what they had on for clothing. Yeah, so this- look, look at taking flights uh, and if flight was to dress up. But, but but even that, I remember when going to our Broadway show was a big thing mm-hmm. and you dressed up and and my wife and I went to one and there were kids in shorts. I'm like, uh, <laughs> and again, and I'm not saying we have to go back to formal black tie and formal attire. Right. But I but I love the concept you're sharing there, Ed, is that presenting oneself as the best they can be. My mom would argue, hey, we were poor, but we didn't know it because we were always clean, dressed well. But that's how society, that's, that's how you operated. I think there's something to be said for that, Ed. I really do. Yeah. Uh, one last example, uh, only because this is uh, touched on something that uh, we talk about a lot. There's a very expensive restaurant in the Boston area called the Capitol Grill. And, you know, you don't wear a suit and tie, but you typically go in with a sport coat and a collared shirt. And, uh, you know, last couple of years when we've gone in, there are people at tables in tennis outfits. And I mean, it looks like a casual bar. And so we said to the hostess, gee, you know, it's not that we're the Rockefellers, but we're just surprised that at this restaurant where it is so expensive to eat that people are here, you know, we thought you had a dress code. Well, you know, it's really hard to manage and we don't want to. And that's like, but you own the restaurant. You could say to people, hey, you're welcome to eat here, but you have to wear slacks or you have to wear, because it just seems like the boundaries between self and community have almost been eliminated. And you can go anywhere dressed any way that you want. 
and be accepted and be let in. So uh, it's interesting on that front. Yeah. Well, Rick, it has been really great speaking with you today. And thank you so much for your thoughts and perspectives on bravery at work. And thank you for sharing your early life story. Uh, fantastic transition from uh, Kentucky to corporate America. If folks wanted to find out more about you and uh, learn a little bit more about Field Agent, and actually just tell me a mi- for a couple of minutes, what does Field Agent do? Yeah, you know, Adam, I'm one of the few people here that I can actually pay people from this podcast, right? Uh, if you're interested in making some extra cash, we're kind of a mystery shopping app where you can go earn some money by doing basic tasks, or you can buy products and try them. But on the other side, people that are clients of ours, they need to understand information at retail, whether it be a quick serve restaurant or retail location. Uh, We capture prices. We do research inside of stores. We do ratings and reviews. And we do this under an umbrella called a marketplace. And that marketplace allows you to click, click and go to cart. And by sitting in your desk today, you can capture data and understand anything at retail uh, just by a few clicks and going to a dashboard. Fantastic. Well, Rick, it was great having you as a guest today. If folks want to find more about you or about Field Agent, where can they go? Fieldagent.net will take them down the right path, fieldagent.net. And if you want to engage me, listen, I'm a LinkedIn guy. You'd be surprised how quickly I'd react to a Rick West Field Agent on LinkedIn. Direct message me, DM me, and let's see if we can't start a conversation. Well, fantastic. Rick, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, you bet. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us today. And we hope you join us on our next podcast conversation as we further explore being brave at work. We also remind you to subscribe to our podcast at BeBraveAtWork.com and or download and listen to our podcast on multiple online platforms. We are everywhere. Our podcast today was sponsored by Cabot Risk Strategies, whom you can reach at 800-222-5963 or visit them for more information at CabotRisk.com. And a reminder to check out my new book, Drive Your Career, Nine High-Impact Ways to Take Responsibility for Your Own Success, which is available in paperback, on Kindle, and in audio everywhere online. Do you have something to say, yet are not saying it? Do you have something to do, yet are not doing it? Now is the time to be brave at work. Have a great week.